We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the show, with the world facing a climate crisis, how can travel and tourism be part of the solution? We'll be hearing how sustainability needs to be top of any traveler's itinerary. For this programme, Intelligence Squared partnered with the Singapore Tourism Board to bring together cross-industry experts to discuss how the travel and tourism industry can go beyond sustainable storytelling and help tackle some of the challenges facing the environment. Here's our host, Juliet Kinsman, Sustainability Editor at Condé Nast, with more. I really, really am happy to welcome you to this very special event organised by the Singapore Tourist Board in partnership with Intelligence Squared and Singapore Imagined Global Conversations. So, sustainability. I'm just so happy we're finally all having this conversation. It's the word on everyone's lips. It's probably the word used too much, but, you know, how things have changed. And and something I I think a lot of us get bombarded with reports that tell us that today's consumer, 80% of them will choose the sustainable option or product or service. So we know it's important. But another report tells us that the big barrier or uh, that challenges all of us is how can we tell something or anything is genuinely sustainable and what does that even really mean? So thank you so much joining me this evening to discuss this topic. Well, I'm really thrilled to have three excellent speakers with me. Uh, we, I know we're gonna have a really interesting conversation. So thank you so much. We have Kavita Prakash Mani. She is CEO of Mandai Nature. That's a Singapore-based conservation nonprofit. They aim to advance nature conversation with a focus on protecting threatened species from extinction, restoring ecosystems, driving nature-based solutions to mitigate climate change. This is what we all need. And creating benefits for local communities. We also have Jane Madden, Global Managing Partner of Sustainability and Social Impact at Finn Partners. She's an award-winning authority on ESG, environmental, social governance, policy, performance, and communications. 
Jane advises Fortune 500 companies across all different sectors, including CPG, manufacturing, and travel and tourism. Thank you. And we have Bjorn Lowe, executive director and co-founder of Edible Garden City, focusing on identifying the value that urban agriculture brings to communities that of high density and food import dependent cities such as Singapore. So thank you so, so much. So I'm gonna start things off with a question I always love to ask because I always love to hear the answer. What does sustainable travel mean to you? So I'm gonna start with you, Kavita. Thanks, Juliet. And thank you all for this opportunity to be here. Um, as you said, you know, from our perspective as Mandai Nature, we're really looking at protecting our wild places and our wild species. And for me, sustainable tourism stems from that. How do we use tourism for the good of nature, of people, to protect our climate? And that's where, you know, we also have in this current context, really, this rising sense of nationalism, like everyone's closing borders, looking inside, uh, feeling threatened, COVID has made it worse. And I think the opportunity to learn, to experience, to be in different cultures, like we were hearing on the last panel, but really from a conservation perspective, to be grounded in nature is really something that tourism can do. Absolutely, thank you, Jane. So I think both from a traveler's perspective or if you're working in the, the, the travel industry, I talk about sustainable travel as being respectful, being respectful not only for the environment, but also the culture, and that's the history, um, but also the social mores of a particular uh, town or, or city or country that you're in, um, and also the people, um, whether those are the locals or the people that are serving you um, in restaurants, in hotels, housekeeping. We always tend to forget about all those people, and being a responsible traveler um, from an individual point of view or from if you're running a business, I think encompasses all of that. Absolutely, yes. And thank you, and Bjorn. Yeah, but, um, what I feel is when sustainable tourism is about um, not being extractive um, when you go to a place um, and really regenerate the space that you visit um, so that you can improve yourself and also um, the, pe the people and the country that you visit. I love that. Can you all actually just really just process that? That was a really, really great answers and really, uh, you know, important. Um, Kavita, you have spent decades working on many different sustainability challenges. Can you tell us a bit about your current work at Mandai Nature and how this fits in with our topic of this evening, which is walking the walk and why it is relevant to the conscious traveler? Absolutely, very happy to. So from a Mandai Nature perspective, we are really looking at how do we protect wild species. Um, to protect wild species, which could be anything from beautiful butterflies, uh, turtles, songbirds, elephants, um, or even the raffles banded langur, which is very unique to Singapore, we also need to protect the places and the habitats that they live in. Uh, and that is, again, tropical forests, mangroves, wetlands, grasslands, uh, coral reefs. So all of these absolutely amazing places that we all love to visit. But intrinsic to that, I think Jane was saying, are the people. These are not always uninhabited people. They are indigenous peoples, local communities, local uh, farmers that are all in those landscapes and have been for generations traditionally and culturally. And so working with them. So it all kind of ties together into this beautiful 
mosaic of, of life that we have. And in that context, we definitely do see the role of tourism. So what we call conservation tourism, which is taking a step forward from ecotourism. And conservation tourism is grounded in, in those concepts. I think with ecotourism, we come to it from uh, the definition of, to put it simply, we want to go into a beautiful place and see a beautiful place. Whereas for conservation tourism, we start with saying we want to protect that beautiful place or those species, and we will design tourism to get to those basic tenets. And we've just put out a report this week, which we'll be happy to share details of, which kind of starts looking at those nuances. I've read it. It's really good. So you do want to read it. I always call it nature-positive tourism is, is one way of, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really important. Um, thank you so much. Bjorn, one of your missions is to bring urban farming to cities to create social impact. Can you share a bit more with us about Edible Garden City and how it's created? Yeah, um, so we started 10 years ago as a social uh, enterprise in urban farming. Of course, the initial um, idea around it was to um, work on food security because Singapore imports 90% of our food from 170 countries. We have 1% of our land dedicated to agriculture uh, that produce 10% of our food. Uh, so we, we kind of looked in the urban spaces and activated rooftops, uh, rooftop car parks, viaducts, into farms, uh, into food production spaces. Of course, uh, during that time, there, there was a big growth um, in, in hotels and sustainability efforts in hotels. So we have built about 270 of these edible gardens all around Singapore. Uh, so you can find them in hotels like Marina Bay Sands and you know Park Royal Bayfront. But what, what we really saw once we activated these spaces is that um, how the community has been impacted. You see um, the people and the, the children, the schools, and, and they come, they engage, and they learn about food sustainability and about growing. Um, we also practice inclusive employment. Um, so we provide jobs um, to the disadvantaged uh, to participate in, in urban agriculture and farming. Uh, we have started to activate these spaces um, into um, care farms where we are providing uh, therapeutic horticulture um, services to the community. So um, while it started from food sustainability, it, it became a lot more of a um, community, social, and environmental uh, impact story that we are trying to um, So I think the sustainability conversation, you know, even though it's advanced considerably recently, it's, you know, that usually people still associate it predominantly with, with the environment. And they just think, you know, um, it, it, they don't realize it's not just about place or nature. Uh, it's, it's about people and it's about community. And I really, I just think that's such an important um, conversation to be having, which of course then Jane will make me, well, uh, you know, I really would love to talk to you. Uh, uh, you've worked across many different industries in terms of ESG. ESG is kind of endangered of becoming a buzzword in itself, but it's something that you, you know, you you understand better than anyone in terms of well performance, in terms of, of reporting. Um, so, in terms of walking the walk, from a comms and brand point of view, what does that mean to you, and how do you work with clients to work more sustainably? So, one of our first rules when we're uh, talking about sustainability communications is defining your terms, um, and so. We define, I define ESG, which, as, as Juliet said, just stands for environment, social, and governance. So it's a holistic look at sustainability. Those are the three pillars of sustainability. Um, second, I want to pick up on what Kavita said about protecting first. And it's something, and we're working with our clients, whether it's in the travel industry or energy industry or you know, consumer products, 
um, it is to first protect them. Because 10 years ago, or even a few years ago, you could pat yourself on the back and say, we're a great company, we have purpose, we're wonderful, everybody should buy our products. You can't do that anymore. Um, and not only can't you go out and just say you're, you're great, you have to prove it. And um, you have to show how sustainability or ESG is integrated into your business. And if you don't have all of it at once, that's okay, but you can start talking about what you're doing now as well as your commitments. Um, another rule we have is to be honest and modest. Um, and it really doesn't help you or, or the audiences you're trying to reach if you're greenwashing or you're exaggerating what you're doing. Um, and, and really, this is based on a foundation of transparency and data. Uh, so we always uh, tell our clients, it is better to say that you're not there yet than to overpromise. Um, and that, you know, and so we will help protect them and promote them. But ultimately, um, what we do, and I think we might be unique at Finn um, with how we work with our clients, we not only do communications. We help develop sustainability slash ESG strategies. We do uh, what's called a materiality assessment, which helps our clients prioritize this big world of ESG. It can be, it's everything um, that you do in the world. It can be encompassed in those three, three letters. So what are those main priorities? Is it the environment, social or governance, and those subcategories under, underneath that? We also help them develop these strategies, implement them, because at the end of the day, your communications mean nothing if you don't have action and data. Thank you. It's so true. So yeah, so social, environmental, and, and we can also say economic. And that's what people sort of don't really realize. That's a big part of the sustainability conversation. Um, for, for I think, well, my own personal mantra always is don't tell me you're sustainable, show me. Mm -hmm. And it's really qualifying that. And I think we need a lot less talk. We know that and a lot more walk. Jane, I'm going to come back to you again. So, um, you know, I, I think... This is the question I, I think is the most one of the most interesting questions also to ask is, what do you think the greatest challenges are that are facing people and planet? Right, we know it's the climate emergency, but what's the interplay of everything that, that's causing that? I'm going to ask you. I'm going to get Jane. <laughs> All right. Well, so of course there are many obstacles there, but for me and one that I've been spending a lot of time on, particularly the past two years, is environmental justice. So looking at that intersection between the environment and social justice, um, what has now been called, um, and I'm going to read this quote so I make sure that I get it uh, correct, we're talking about the intersectionality of the environment. And there is an environmental educator who coined this term, intersectional environmentalist. And she says, we need to acknowledge, and her name is Leah Thompson, we need to acknowledge the fundamental truth that we cannot save the planet without uplifting the voices of its people. And I think that's very profound. I really, really, I mean, that's really important. I think it's often neglected. You know, we see lots of articles that just tell us the top line, the nice stuff, um, uh, and it's a bit superficial. Bjorn, what do you think the greatest challenge is facing people and planet? Um, of course, with my, my work, uh, food systems have been very challenged. Um, of course, what we've seen is actually an in inequity in the, in the food system. Uh, a lot of times, uh, it's not the limitation of production, that there is a lot of food. It's just the distribution of food um, to those that are in need. Um, and in Singapore, we, we started to look at that because uh, we were doing a lot of um, growing of um, very high-end produce um, uh, supplied to 70-odd um, restaurants. Uh, a lot of times, uh, this does not address food inequity uh, issues in Singapore. And we started working with uh, migrant workers, uh, which actually faced quite a bit of a challenge during the, the COVID lockdowns. 
uh, on access to food, um, and also elderly as well. Um, and, and how do we bring food to them? Um, and this lack of food sovereignty actually um, created uh, inequity in that food system. Um, and, and so in, in our small ways, how, do, um, how are we solving those problems in Singapore um, for those um, ma marginalized groups um, can, can really address the in in inequity in the food system? Food system is profound. I'm just going to add a side note that, uh, well, I, I, I contribute to the to the Daily Climate Show on Sky, which I have to say is on pause at the moment because of the Ukraine coverage, which tells us a lot about uh, the, the situation. You know, we need to know about the environment more than ever, and actually it's a, there's a distraction. But anyway, George Monbiot, if you know him, I really recommend you read his books. His, I look to him as one of the greatest um, spokespeople on let's say sustainability, but his next, next big book and what he always says to me, the biggest challenge is absolutely we have to overhaul our food systems for lots of different reasons. And it's, there's obviously they're very nuanced and complex as we say about everything sustainability. But Kavita, what do you think? What, what do you think? I, I love being the third person on this because I think the interconnectedness is so profound. Um, I would obviously say that you know, our natural world is at crisis and we need to protect it. But we need to protect it. We obviously need to protect it because it needs to be protected, but also for ourselves. Um, as the people dependent on, on environment right now, the nature depends. 30% of climate solutions are nature-based. If we keep cutting down our forests and, and our mangroves and you know, ruining our peatlands, we will never solve the climate problem. We will then get into you know, more immigration issues and more issues of you know, people moving and, and going into poverty. Poverty itself is the biggest threat uh, to nature. We have profound loss of nature because of agriculture. It's the agriculture is the biggest cause of loss of ecosystems and you know 30% of climate emissions come from agriculture. So you can start seeing how these things become connected in it. But really the starting point has to be about protecting our forest. Just one thing, we just take the Amazon rainforest for granted. The Amazon rainforest is at a tipping point. We can any day switch it from a forest, which are the lungs of our world, to being a savanna grassland. And we will change our entire food system and throw people into poverty. So those interconnectedness and starting with those basic principles of protection and restoration and regeneration just have to be at the heart of what we do. Absolutely, and I think, I don't know how to express it, but it's sort of like sustainability is non-binary. Everything is completely, it's not this or that, all of it is linked in terms of you know biodiversity. We hear that word, do we have to sort of, it, you know, we need to boost biodiversity again because the planet and nature has to work together as one big functioning system. We're all part of that. We are nature. And I think a lot of urban residents forget that, actually. Uh, that's what we're sort of disconnected from it. Um, so we talk a lot, as I say, about the complexities and, and the nuances. What are the main obstacles when it comes to navigating uh, these in, in, in travel, do you think? Um, and I will ask you, Kavita. I think that there, there, are, there are a lot of challenges around this. And where we started off was actually to start going down to saying, what are the basic tenets? And we had a, had a visual, if you can bring that up, of what does a sustainable uh, tourism look like? And you know, while we just tend to say, oh, it just depends on like protecting nature, it's not. It's actually getting the conservation storyline, but also getting the smart goals that you can look at materiality, 
ensuring that there's commercial sustainability on all of these things because they will not sustain. And all of you are from the industry. You know what it takes to get to that commercial sustainability as well. How do we get the people engaged? One of the real forgotten things about tourism is the equitable sharing of resources, of ownership, of those communities that live there, not just setting up something and giving them jobs. This is their land, their area where we are going in, and they need to own it. They need to see that benefit from it. Uh, but also about the, the supply chains. How do you source locally? How do you have that trickle-down effect of tourism into that? If you are taking people there, to see certain species, I mean, look at the Rwanda gorillas or you know, going into uh, safaris for the Big Five or coming to Colombia to see the birds or to, South Af uh, to Southeast Asia uh, to see our orangutans or the elephants or the, or the tigers. If they are not protected, we will not sustain that tourism. So the base of all of these are about protecting these communities and these people. And so we really look at that. So one of the examples we have um, is this Cardamom uh, Hills uh, project that is in Cambodia. Um, and we have a little visual on that just to show how you can bring private sector together with NGOs, in this case, the Wildlife Alliance, to create this very diverse uh, cardamom tented camps in, in, in the mountains there that protect forests. So you actually have patrolling. You can take your, uh, your customers to be part of those patrols, to have citizen signs, uh, to go and find the snares uh, that are capturing and killing our animals, to really bring people together into that community and bring the conservation core uh, into some of those uh, examples that we have of good tourism. Thank you. I mean, Juliet, if I could yeah, just add please. to that, from a business point of view, um, and I knew when I met you, we would be on the same wavelength. Um, it's just good business anymore, and you know, it isn't an add-on because you are not only mitigating risk as a business person, um, but you're you're maximizing those opportunities, and you are protecting Absolutely. your future business as well as the future of the planet. Yes, Bjorn. But I I think one of the major obstacles um, is always the kind of a debate on uh, inconvenience, right? Um, sustainability means um, more expensive. Uh, it means it's really inconvenient. You choose between the compost toilet and flush toilet, right? Which will you choose? Um, and, and that is that sort of mindset shift that needs to happen within travelers um, that sustainably do sometimes come with some inconvenience as well. So just getting through that mindset. Shift. Absolutely. That was actually the point I was going to make was that, you know, a lot of what we're here for travel and tourism conversation, but it's universal, all of these themes. And I think absolutely the barriers are we're addicted to convenience, we're addicted to bargains. And, um, you know, we just have to stop and sort of think about every decision, decision that we make. I think uh, if you speak to hoteliers, that's obviously me personally, that's my world. Uh, professionally, I also work as a consultant with hotels. They'll tell you their barrier to, to sustainability is they don't have the time or the money to invest in initiatives that cost them time and money. So um, I think I think we, that's where the governance, the G comes in. Also, things need to be managed, and they will be. Um, you know, it's a very sobering fact that they, I mean, it's, it's, it's understood 
that you know, if every single company or, or every commitment or pledge made at COP26 uh, was upheld, um, we still don't stand a chance of making the 1.5 degree uh, you know, cap on the global, global warming heating. Um, and so it's probably going to be 1.8 degrees. I mean, oh, it would want to be about three degrees. There you, I mean, this is really, really significant. So what are the obstacles? I think we, well, we need, we need things to change. Um, and we need to all better understand our role in that. Um, I was also going to ask you about what does a positive impact tourism model look like? And I think, Kavita, you've really shown us that in terms of conservation. I think I loved, Bjorn, how you mentioned, you know, this is key in sustainability. It can't be extractive. It has to be restorative or regenerative. Can you speak more to that in terms of a tourism model? Um, well, personally, um, I've done purpose-driven travel um, through volunteering and um, working on farms uh, a lot of times and um, you know, restoring um, 16th century um, barns in the middle of Wales and um, farming rice in the middle of Seoul. So it, it's not so much more of uh, a consumption travel. Um, it was a more purpose-driven, it's more participative uh, tourism uh, where I spent a lot more time uh, with the community, with families, um, contributing to the local economy at the pub uh, most of the time. Um, and, and, you know, the best conversations uh, I had in the pub, I was in the middle of Scotland, um, and the pub owner loved me so much, he offered me a job. <laughs> so I, I, think, I think that that, that kind of um, um, experience um, and this participative tourism uh, is, is really... Positive. Actually, and what you're highlighting there, which is real, is interaction and engaging with one, one another. And I think for me, you know, one of the most powerful ways to recalibrate is community-based tourism. So it's about the people. It's about addressing uh, the leakage issue so that more money stays in, in destinations where we travel and in local pockets. Um, I would imagine, you know, that's, that's very much a, a social impact-focused theme. I don't know if, Jane, you wanted to add to that as well. Yes, yeah. I, I think both for me as a traveler as well as... Um, somebody who's been working in sustainability their entire career, that is what is very important to many travelers, or they're learning about it. They may not really think about it, but making sure that our dollars are staying where we're spending them is very important. And um, I have one other quote um, from Talbot 5, which I think many people in this room know is the former uh, Secretary General of UNWTO. And uh, Talbot always talks about you can't build a five-star resort in a two-star community. Um, you have to build them both at the same time, and that is building the growth and more proactive, as well as, you know, it's protecting the economy and protecting people's livelihoods, but also using this opportunity to build community. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. 
complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thank you so much. And I'm just going to quote the much wheeled out uh, United Nations stat that, you know, typically of every $100 spent in luxury travel or tour tourism, only $5 stays in that local place where, you, where you're spending it. So that's, it's, that's a pre-pandemic stat and it's, it's significant. Um, what I would really love to talk to you all about is, you know, what makes a destination particularly compelling from a sustainability point of view? Kavita, what do you think? Well, tourism is all about pretty places and good food and, you know, all the experiences that, that we can have. So I think, you know, it's really about, for me, and I think from our perspective, it's really about finding the right place with the right people experiences in that. And of course, we now have 53% of, you know, travelers saying, in the latest booking.com thing about saying that they want to look at uh, sustainable tourism. But you also have like $343 billion going into wildlife tourism pre-COVID, and it'll hopefully come back. So for us, you know, the destination needs to speak to those you know, uh, experiences, but also really be grounded in the conservation elements uh, that we want. I mean, we just have to say it, the loss of tourism in the last two years, of course, you know, you're from the industry, you know what it means to all of you. But from a conservation perspective, not getting money into those critical areas has meant that our protected areas management has not had funding. We've had to lay off rangers. We've had to lay off, you know, all the staff that works there. The communities that live there have not got incomes. So they are killing the animals or poaching has gone up or deforestation has gone up because they absolutely need those, need those resources. From a destination perspective, those are the areas that we need to get tourism back. Absolutely. Thank you. And Bjorn, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I, I feel that, you know, it, it can't be just one narrative um, within a destination. Uh, it needs to be an ecosystem of experiences um, and diversity of experience, sustainable experience. If you're just going for one thing, you know, it, it lacks that. Um, in, 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 the, in the image um, that will be shown, um, we if uh, we were trying to create this um, narrative around a single origin Singapore chocolate with Janice Wong, um, and probably five years back, we would not be, have, have been able to do it. Uh, so we, we're planting a thousand cacao trees in Singapore so that she can make her single origin chocolate. So the authentic story um, and the real story that, that has to come out to make it compelling for people to visit and participate in it uh, is really important. So authentic stories, yeah. Thank you. And after all, that's why we travel, is to have authentic experiences of places different to what we know. And that addresses the very first point that was made about the rise in nationalism. Kavita, yes? So Bjorn said a really interesting thing about, about Singapore. So I'm going to take a, take a minute since I do live there um, and work there. But, but I think that is a really good example of how we have taken urban travel 
and matched it really well in the new context with, with nature travel um, as well. Because the city, even a very urban city, allows you that experience and has got a lot of green spaces going. We have national parks, we have you know, mangroves and species coming back. I mean, in the urban uh, context of looking at you know, whether it's endangered species like the song, uh, um, straw-headed bulbul, or looking at our uh, raffles banded langur, or the otters coming back because the waterways have cleaned up, or hornbills coming back, you know, which, we, we, which we had lost. So we are able to create those little patches of tropical forests, real wildlife uh, experiences on the doorstep of a very urban environment that kind of brings that, uh, you know, as Bjorn was saying, the different elements together. Thank you. Actually, I don't know how many of you know, but London's not far off qualifying as a park city. We just need to have a few more green spaces, I think, on roofs. I might fact check that. Uh, <laughs> but that's quite interesting. However, Singapore is a garden city. And I just actually just recalled something. It's a city in nature. We've kind of moved yeah. from being a garden city well, to being a city in nature. All, all I was going to say was we, I had a conversation with, with Bjorn about the significance or the distinction between a garden and a park. And I just wondered if it was such an interesting point you made. Yeah, so uh, interesting that um, we named uh, the organization Edible Garden City when Singapore was a garden city. But of course, Singapore, as progressive as it is, um, tends tend to change the narrative quite quite often, right? Um, so now our name is not really uh, apl applicable anymore. So, um, But I, I guess in, in the, what we have in Singapore, the green infrastructure um, is creating not parks, because in, in parks, people tend to be very... Um, disassociated, you're there walking a dog, you're there to exercise. But in the garden, um, people engage in the community, they share knowledge, uh, they bicker a little bit, you know, politically, why, why are you growing this thing? You're, you know, causing shade on my, on my plant. But it becomes a community. Uh, so you have a lot more activity in the garden as compared to a park. So more gardens, less parks. And again, I love that idea. I guess it's, it's almost a metaphor, the garden bringing people together. It's more intimate, everyone communicating. I just, I, I liked that image. So, you know, here, we're here to talk about walking the walk and moving beyond sustainability storytelling. What would your advice be to individuals and businesses who would like to walk less talk? Um, I think we're all keen to know you know, how either, maybe it's not us applying it, but if we can pass that on to, through our work or, or our clients or our, whoever it is. Yeah, what advice would you have? I think uh, you have to start with setting goals um, and smart goals. And we have one example that we were looking at. So you'll have to test me on this, but smart includes being specific, measurable, actionable, relatable, uh, trans uh, traceable, uh, transparent. And I think in that context, you know, one of the examples that we have here is this Burana Lodge, which is in Kenya, which was set up with a very clear goal of helping protect rhinos. Rhinos are one of the most endangered species we have. Um, they worked very much with the communities there. They also created this very interesting financial system of where they were raising money uh, from a number of their partners, but also from the different lodges and communities uh, and co-investing it, it, it back. But they were very clear on what the goals were, which then allowed them to show how they were delivering against those goals, but also allowed them to communicate very clearly about what was the proposition from the tourism perspective, uh, what were people contributing to, how that money was then actually resulting in that, how it was being shared back with the community. So I think you know if you can get those tenets right and then set the goals around that with the long-term 
uh, conservation and then tell the story uh, around it because these places have amazing stories uh, to be told, hopefully from the people themselves. And I think that's one of the reasons we travel is to understand and engage with these. That's, you know, that's, that's, you know, these living, breathing case studies. We have a responsibility to maybe be more curious. That was something we talked about in the, in the last session, but being curious and, and learning. And look, you know, when we talk about rhinos, it's not like, oh, poor rhinos. It's a big deal when anything in nature is disrupted. The whole, it's short circuits, you know, the system doesn't function. function. Sorry if I'm mumsplaining. That's what my daughter would say I'm doing right now. You probably, you know, realize that. Um, so... Something I am going to do. You have other actionable advice or thoughts, Jane? You must do. That's what. That's yeah. What so you do. Uh, first, from the ind individual as a traveler, do your research. Take the time, identify um, whether it's through certifications or uh, in the media. Find out about the uh, operators you're using, uh, the destinations you're going to. Uh, and you know, make a pledge to yourself that you are going to be a responsible traveler. And there are examples of that um, um, that you can find, I believe, in Iceland and Palau. Actually, you have to sign. It's part of your passport to get into Palau that you're going to be a responsible traveler. There are easy ways to do it as well. Just you know, take the train. You're you're close to. You know, it's easy when you're you know here in in the UK and in Europe, less so in, in my home country, the United States. Um, but if you are flying. Find the carriers that are using more sustainable aviation fuel, or otherwise known as biofuels. Those are really making those efforts. And this data is available. Sometimes you just have to dig for it, but find it. Also look at hotels that are LEED certified or BREAM certified. Um, those, are, those are opportunities. And of course, um, just going back to the social issues, be very respectful, respectful of the communities you're in. From a business, it's following these other models that exist in, in sustainable business. Um, and again, as Kavita said, starts with smart goals, identifying those, understanding what the material issues are for your business. Um, and you can do that even if you're a smaller, small, medium-sized business. These are not only for global 500 companies. Um, and you know. Identify, is it prioritizing using less water, um, only having showers instead of bathtubs? Um, an anecdote I'd, I'd love to tell came from when Cape Town was going through its, its drought, and one of the luxury hotels, um, you, you can message all you want and put signs up. They um, took all of the plugs out of the, the bathtubs, and if you wanted to take a bath, you had to go to the concierge, and they gave you a plug, but it now had a rubber duck on it. So you had to walk through the lobby, <laughs> and everybody knew that you were taking a bath instead of like a three-minute shower. Which is that's brilliant. Which always yeah. follow, that follows my rule of uh, edutainment. So yeah. you know you're educating and entertaining. Yeah, at the same absolutely. Time, the Grail. Um, and I think you know another issue is paying the right wages, appropriate wages, whether that's a living wage, and making sure again that everybody in the travel industry is is participating both financially as as well as bringing all these great experience experiences to travelers. Yeah, I think um, from from a business perspective, uh, we we have made the same mistake as well, right? Um, is um, sort of scratching the surface and greenwashing um, uh, the stories that we push out. 
Um, but if we, businesses really need to approach sustainability from a system change um, perspective, um, the, the, the issue we're in, the, the challenge we're in is a systemic problem and they need to look at it holistically and not just fix little bits and pieces along the way so they, have, they can have a good marketing story. So be, be truthful about it. Yeah. Really, as somebody who writes a lot about sustainability, that is absolutely <laughs> key. I really hope everyone's sort of thinking about that. And just going back to something Kavita said, which is what I would really amplify is supply chains. We are only as good as our supply chains all the way down. It can be really complex. I'll just give you one little stat that will uh, highlight that rather um, depressingly. <laughs> uh, you know, it's great. Let's all get solar panels. Look at the solar panels in the UK. 40% of the solar panels in the UK were made in forced labor camps in China by Uyghurs. So that was all I'm saying. It's like, you know, it's very nuanced. It's complex. We really need to look at every aspect of our sustainability. So, um, I love this. What terms do we love and loathe <laughs> and why? I mean, you know, there's so many buzzwords out there. What do we think? Bjorn, what do you love or loathe? I used to love uh, the term farm to table. Um, it was very romantic, right? Um, then one day, Antin Bodan said, um, but everything is from the farm to the table, right? So it's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Um, but if I'm the next, next image uh, to, to show you, um, just how we actually translated um, very global, uh, global North narrative, um, Jamie Oliver, which all of you know, uh, when he started the restaurant in Singapore eight years ago, um, it was very cliche, right? Community gardening, we, we ran that. Um, we also played around with the foraging narrative uh, for a long time with um, Western chefs coming into Singapore. Um, over time, in 10 years, we, we have started to explore um, Singapore's heritage um, of the indigenous people, of the Orang Lao people. And here you see on the right, um, Tim Rao uh, came uh, recently and we, we did a session with uh, Fridas from uh, Orang Lao and he was actually narrating stories um, about native plants and, and memories from, from his grandmother. Uh, and, and that becomes then that, that um, journey that we took from um, you know, greenwashing or, 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 or trying to adapt a story from, from the global north uh, to then fi finding our own voice in Singapore. Thank you so much, Jane. One I love, one I've used today is ESG because it says what it is. It's very simple. It's it's to the point. Um, it is a, a newer phrase. Um, it might be, you know, it comes from the financial world, so very data-driven, data and it might be on the verge of being overused. Um, I hope not uh, for, for all those reasons. Um, one I do not, I be, I've like less, is anything eco because I feel like that's no, greenwashing. Eco. What does that even mean I mean, now? when it's it first true, started, it was great, but I think it's overused. Eco-friendly, eco-friendly planes, that's my favorite one. Eco-friendly flights, they're never eco-friendly. Oh, that, that list is endless. Yeah. <laughs> let's go, let's go. Eco-tourism, sustainable tourism, conservation tourism, nature-based tourism, wildlife tourism. Uh, I mean, like, we- These can, are the good guys. <laughs> these are the good guys, but who knows what they mean? And are they interchangeable? Does one, you know, differ from the other? I mean. But that's what I think we've, we've kind of like lost the plot on that, the number of certification we have. I don't think even 
a lot of us who've like live our lives looking at certification. Carbon neutral travel. Oh, what, what does that mean? Bird friendly coffee. Uh, uh, net zero. What is, what, what is that? Does anyone else feel that way? I, I actually can't bear to hear something it's carbon just... neutral or net zero. It doesn't. And poor 2030 is over there as a, as a year cowering, going, everybody needs to be something by my year. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, so using simpler language would be so much better. I mean, so we're starting to just say wild places and wild animals. I mean, we at least get what that is. It doesn't include us. <laughs> but, you know, but so I think, you know, we have to break down this whole jargon. And what did I learn at business school? Jargon, right? Like we can all just talk to each other in jargon. I'm with you, honestly. It's, we just have to qualify what we're saying. And I think it, those of you who are journalists in the room or anyone who's press or you write communications or anything like that, we have a huge responsibility, as I say, my mantra is to show, show, don't tell, and really qualify everything and not just use these terms willy-nilly. Um, and, you know, there's so much greenwashing around at the moment. It's, it's, it's stifling. So we hear a lot about ESG, but not, there's not one universal standard of measurement. What do you think the key considerations are, Jane? So speaking of certifications and standards, um, there's more than one. There are many. The good news is, um, in terms of disclosure, ESG reporting, we have seen a consolidation. We're, we're in the process of a consolidation of some of... If not the standards yet, the organizations that are running them. Um, so if you're familiar with some of the... the, the you tell us what ESG yeah. sorry. Environmental sorry. social governance is the term, Jane. can. It's, it's a term, but I mean, you, you can explain yeah, it better. Yeah, that's exactly it. Just that's the, the, it's the three pillars of sustainability, environmental, social, and governance um, in the business world. Um, and as Juliet had mentioned, um, if you're talking in, in the governmental world, it's often environmental, social, and economic. So there, there are a lot of standards out there in terms of... Of, of reporting, such as the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, the Global Reporting Initiative, the Task Force on Climate Finance Disclosure. Um, so it's an alphabet soup. And uh, we're seeing a consolidation of, of that. I don't think we will ever get to one standard because you know, if we're looking from a business point of view, finance doesn't have one standard, um, at least a global standard. You know, the US has a different standard than Europe does. And you know, I think if you are looking for certifications, make sure that they are from a reputable organization, that they are relevant and material to your particular issue. So there are standards, if you're in travel, start with the GSTC. That's another acronym that I... By the way, if you look at GSTC's Instagram today, they did a really great story, which was modeled on a Singapore hotel. If you go to their stories, and it shows a really nice methodology for measuring sustainability, just to side note. So, you know... I wouldn't get um, caught up in the standards at the moment. Just start measuring. You measure, you know, on the environmental side, it's carbon, it's water, um, and it's waste. Those are the three big issues. Social issues are human rights, uh, trafficking, modern-day slavery, those types of issues, obviously wages, which I had mentioned before. And, and if maybe you're not feeling that, you're still like, okay, what is ESG still? So just remember, we used to talk about CSR, so corporate social responsibility. That was a term used for companies or businesses. They would talk about that now very much in the business sector, they have to think about and measure their ESG. It's just that there's not a universal framework. So it's like they'll all talk a good ESG game. It's, it's, it's very much, it's, it's uh, you know, um, that's why it's danger of just becoming a buzzword, um, because it's not official. For, nothing's formalized. None of these terms are formalized. No, no, and there has been an evolution, as, as you, know, you said, from CSR, um, citizenship or other words that are used, and we're seeing more focus on using the term sustainability ESG. As, as the the, you know, 
sustainability itself is an industry and how this space has evolved. The, also, the nomenclature has evolved, but we still have that, that challenge. Um, one other thing I just wanted to add, and it just, just, just I'm not going to add it because it just popped out okay, of my well, mind. Well, we've only got, we've got a few minutes left, so think about, <laughs> your, transparent. think about your very difficult questions that you're going to ask us all. Please, please, throw them at us. Um, it's, I'm, I'm realizing, you know, it's quite, we're being quite serious, but sustainability, there's a lot to tackle, a lot to think about. Um, I'm going to ask, you know, you know, on a positive note, you know, what are we really excited about? What can we be excited about? And what is next in the sustainability conversation? Kavita, what do you think? Borrowing something from the food side, I just love the concept of slow food or slow travel. Um, and I think, you know, obviously tourism is not all good. We've had lots of issues of tourism. Tourism is one of the biggest climate emitters, um, greenhouse gas emitters as well. It can be, you know, from a people's side, it can be very exploitative. Uh, it does take a lot of resources out of communities and out of nature. Uh, but this whole idea of giving back and more experience and more education, entertainment. So slow travel, which would be don't take lots of weekend trips and lots of uh, you know air miles, but take a destination, take the time to spend there, to see, you know, immerse yourself in whether it's Japan or Singapore or or um, or New York, uh, but you know more and more into into natural environments. And we're seeing post-COVID, people are really feeling from a health and mental wellness well-being the need to be in these spaces. Yeah. So we just need to slow it down. Yeah. Thank you, Jane. Completely agree with that. I would take it one step further and use use travel as a way to educate people about sustainability um, and, and all those, those aspects that you've mentioned in the environmental and social. Absolutely, thank you. And Bjorn, what would you say? Um, I think I, I shared this um, before, but um, really the sort of resurgence of participative uh, tourism, um, more of the woofing, more of the couch surfing. Do you know surfing. what woof woofing stands for? Yeah, so um, worldwide opportunities on organic farm used to be willing workers on organic farms and, you know, you spend time in exchange for food and lodging, you work on the farm um, and the network is global network, right? You can, you can experience, uh, I, I went to Japan and did woofing. Every morning I woke, woke up, Mount Fuji was just there, you know, so um, I met Japanese that have not seen Mount Fuji before because it's always covered in clouds, right? <laughs> so, so, so that kind of experience and then that participative uh, tourism uh, and immersive tourism um, uh, it's really exciting for me, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited personally. I love that hotels are offering behind-the-scenes tours now. That's something I'm really enjoying, and businesses are really pulling back the curtain and, you know, allowing you to see how their operations work, and it's a, a great education, so thank you. Um, didn't, sorry, didn't in COVID times a lot of the hotels and destinations just allow people to live there for months? Like, isn't that one of the big trends we've seen of if you are working from home, work, work from Barbados? Or, you know, you've, you've had that yeah. big shift in, in, in tourism right now, people just living longer for uh, in destinations. And moving around as promads, oh, buzzword, professional nomad. Um, absolutely, that's a great, you know, people are, are traveling, well, that's part of your slow as well, traveling less and, and, for, and for longer. Um, we've, we've obviously covered a lot, and I, I really would love to take some audience questions. Have you got any questions, please? Uh, great. I think, do we have to surrender? We'll have to surrender one of our mics. Thank you so much. Regarding sustainable tourism, where are the great examples in the world of where sustainable movement within cities 
is really forward thinking with regards to not only tourism, but also the local community? Cities is harder because I think it's, I mean, Singapore could be an example, but I think from a broader tourism perspective, we see a lot of really good examples out there. So, you know, I'll take one from Namibia, the Wolverdens, where they actually work with community conservancies and ownership, bringing in private sector investment and skills uh, to really look at nature conservation and that really coming together with the tourists then being, you know, a core part of that or you look at wilderness safaris or you know, uh, blue ventures. So there's a lot of examples where these things are, are definitely coming together. I think from a city side, it's, it's more, I think we need to work harder uh, at it. But what we are seeing a lot is uh, this rise of uh, you know, more participatory uh, actions and more experiential things. So, you know, city tours, uh, cultural tours, food tours, nature tours, Pion, did you have thoughts? I agree. Cities are, are quite challenging. Of course, Singapore is making quite a lot of headways into it because of um, broader commitments from, from the government. Of course, um, you know, I, I've seen examples in Belize, um, um, uh, again, conservation. But, you know, you can be a ranger for a day and, you know, go find um, where the traps are. And, you know, you can be, be very participative. Um, but yeah, I think I think we, we need to work harder on cities. Yeah, I'm going to comment and say I think cities are great, and actually a lot of them do. You know, a big neglected part of the sustainability conversation is accessibility and diversity, um, and I think a lot of city hotels really model uh, proactive. Uh, well, I'd like to area. give a, a plug for Chicago, where I currently live, which is one of the best cities in the world, um, and is doing all the things the greatest city in the world, as our, our local historian says. But it is accessible. There's a great mass transit system. You live on a great lake and it's got wonderful things to say but I'd also say the Galapagos uh, because it's regulated um, because they just as as this discussion has, has shown if we don't take care of these jewels they will disappear and they're really uh, limiting the number of people and the sizes of the ships that are going into the Galapagos um, and I think they're they're doing a, a very good job of that. Great. Well, thank you so much. I saw Vicky Smith from Earthchain just put her hand up. I know that she has a question. Thank you so much. Thanks, Julia. Vicky Smith from Earthchangers, founder. I deal with positive impact tourism. I'm a specialist. The big question for me is consumer demand. You know, I've worked in sustainable tourism 15 years. I've worked in general mainstream travel industry 25 years. And there is immense stuff going on locally, for conservation, community, and we all know, those of us here, that there is incredible opportunity, particularly at this time post-COVID, because of the consumer greater understanding and awareness of the need to connect to nature, to community, to, to love, to caring for our planet. So the question, which is always the challenge, is how do we get consumers to change? Because the opportunity is there, the supply side is there, the technology is there. The surveys are there that says consumers want to do it. And yet the consumer behavior is that it sticks to what it knows without willing to make a real jump and a real change. And that's what's required in order to really push sustainable tourism on that trajectory. So how do we make us people, how do we, make us, how, how do we inspire behavioral change? I think you just start offering, like, it's not a choice. It's just the way that you do business. 
Um, and I think you won't lose many customers. You will get millennials and Gen Z because just as they are tech savvy and native, native to tech, this is what they look for. It's the way that they live their lives. And um, I would also get ahead of the curve because it's going to be more regulated. We're seeing that in cruising and in ports, even though perhaps luxury, luxury travelers are not asking for it, um, it, you're going to have to do it as a business. And I think just facilitate virtue signaling wherever you can. I'm not, you know, there's no problem with people doing that if it's actually going to demonstrate uh, uh, that they're doing better. I'll give you an example. I just took the train across Europe and uh, hotels will offer you uh, a special price if you've taken the train. They'll give you a good rate. It's incentivizing people in that way um, and, and allowing them. That's my thought. Absolutely. I think one of the trends that I was reading about was how everyone wants to have an Instagrammable image uh, from their travel. So everyone's looking for that unique experience, that unique photograph, that you know, unique story that they're telling. And I think a lot of sustainable travel actually lends itself better to that trend, uh, where, where you can actually customize a little more, make it core of, you know, part of, 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 of the offer. Uh, but also there is, in my mind, this thing of, you know, which I don't have an answer to, of saying, what is mass tourism or versus what is specialist uh, tourism? And, you know, do you have a Nepal-type uh, business where it's all about mass uh, backpackers or is it more the Bhutan model where it's more you know regulated and I think in both scenarios right you can decrease the amount of impact that that the tourist has or amp up the amount of experience that they have and I think that's that's those are the models that we want but I think at a core what we would like is that these are non-negotiables I think like any other sector, this has to be at least core basic sustainability of how operations are run are not optional. So thank you so much. We're going to take one more question. I'm just going to make a side comment about the Bhutan model. I'm sure you know, but it's, it's just that they don't have so many visitors at all, and they have much higher spend. They have to. And that sounds very elitive, elitist and exclusive, but it means less people spending more money is the holy grail. But at the same time, you need to make it accessible, I believe, for the domestic market. So you mentioned Namibia earlier. That's where it was challenging during the pandemic. They didn't have a domestic market. So we constantly have to think sustainability is non-binary. Um, so question we have... Hi. Hi, I'm Claire from Travel Weekly. Oh, hello. Sorry. Hello, hi. <laughs> so we're a publication that works with the travel trade. Um, just following on from Vicky's question, I absolutely agree that I think we do need to make it non-negotiable um, for sustainable travel to be an option. What do we do in the meantime, you know, to, to encourage and persuade and sell those, those, those trips that are more sustainable and encourage people to make more sustainable choices when there are lots of options that aren't very sustainable? Who would like to answer that? I could talk for days on that one, but who would like to answer that? This is reminiscent of a number of sectors, you know, taking examples from other sectors so we, so we can learn. And I think the food sector has definitely been one where there's a lot of discussion of saying, oh, but it's cheaper to buy mass-produced food, whereas food that is good for you, uh, healthier for you, more nutritious, is more expensive. Um, and we've still started to see slight shifts in that, in that because, you, because people then realize what's in it for them. And I think we've always found that you can always, well, we can't always, but it's easier to sell something when they see what's in it for them than to say, oh, it's better for the environment or it's better for the animals and it's better for, for the people. So I think, you know, if we can use that hook, especially in times of like, 
you know, all this health and, and well-being and, you know, we talk about forest bathing as, and, you know, uh, all of these new concepts. I think we need to translate that and find those hooks a little better. And I think the millennials are more I, I, open to it. I completely agree. I really want to sort of emphasize that too. You know, people are selfish and they're allowed to be a bit selfish with their trips and the holidays. So if you can just say, look, you know what? It's the right thing to do, but it also feels nicer. It's more nutritious, let's call it, to take the sustainable trip. And I do think travel agents and travel operators have a huge responsibility to think about that properly. I don't think that they do, do a good enough job at the moment in the mainstream. I, I would add, certainly education is, is a big part of it. But I would look at sustainability as the new luxury and sell it that way. Thank you. I mean, I really thank you so, so much. I don't think we've got time for any more questions. I'm so sorry. Um, I, I, I found that a really, really edifying, important conversation. Thank you so much to everyone. Thanks to my panelists. Thank you to, to the Singapore Tourist Board for hosting this and putting it together. And of course, to Intelligence Squared. Thank you.